Hi there, this is James Swanick, and you're listening to the Swanick Podcast. I am James Swanick, and today we are talking all things sleep with one of the world's top sleep coaches, Nick Littlehales, who is the author of the best-selling book, Sleep, published in 2016 and has now been translated into 15 different languages. And Littlehales is recognized as an elite sport sleep coach and an expert in human recovery. He's worked with professional soccer clubs, including English Premier League clubs, Manchester United, Chelsea and Arsenal, the England national team and Real Madrid in Spain. Nick Littlehales, welcome. Great to reconnect with you. Proper introduction that was, wasn't it? Well done. But uh, nice to be with you. Well, my first question is my most important question. Why haven't you worked with my team, Tottenham Hotspur? I'm outraged. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, sport, in some areas of sport, it's, uh, it's all about sharing knowledge at certain levels with coaches and medics and sports science. Uh, but there's also, you know, a competitive edge to this, uh, this thing called sport. So I think sometimes, um, whilst I have worked um, with a number of clubs, it's just a, a question of, um, you know, you can't work with everybody. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But strangely enough, there's always a lot of movement around in sports, whether it's managers, coaches or players. So indirectly, I do have some connections with, with inside of Tottenham, but not necessarily working with them fully as a club. Yeah. My apologies. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Uh, I wanted to kick things off. I, I was—I uh, know you've probably shared the story a few times, but I was—I uh, was curious about when you were working with the English national team at the European Championships in 2004. As I understand it, you went to a hotel in Lisbon, Portugal, where the English national team was was staying, and you went there ahead of time, and you started putting in either new mattresses or new lighting or setting up the hotel rooms so the English soccer players would then be able to have optimal sleep. Can you just walk us through what you did there and what the reaction was at the time? Long time ago now. Um, I think it, it was a combination of a series of discussions uh, along with uh, Manchester United into uh, Arsenal Football Club, uh, into the national squad, uh, because the lead physio with Arsenal was also the lead physio for England. And it was just a development of, of conversations that I was having with these individuals and players. And so when it came to going to Lisbon, there was a unique set of circumstances where they were going to be staying in one particular hotel and just traveling out to games, whereas normally they'd be moving around hotels. So there were, it was a sort of unique opportunity to take full advantage of taking over this hotel in Lisbon. So because I was in and around uh, that particular environment at the time. Uh, and, you know, I was passing on all the things that that I thought could help, you know, human performance in these areas, that uh, it was deemed that we could do something about uh, raising the levels of particularly the environment at that hotel. So I, I went out, uh, the manager at the time was Sven Goran Eriksson, 
Um, his chief doc was uh, Leif Sward. And we went out as an advance party to have, you know, for me to have a look at the hotel. And it was that particular time we started looking at the profiles of the individual players. Uh, we were looking at the positioning of the hotel rooms as far as sunrise and sunset, about trying to control temperature, how much we could control things like blackout and uh, creating darkness in the room. And obviously hotels um, are very much set up just for anybody to come along. So we're talking about elite athletes and we just looked at maybe we could change one or two things that were in that room uh, and looking at light and dark and temperature and, and all sorts of things, protocols to manage the rooms. But then we decided that the products that they had uh, were not suitable. So that's when I was challenged to create some products that we could ship out that were not just picking any old products. Uh, we were looking for things that we could add to the current mattresses they had in there, like toppers, or almost replace the whole unit. And we looked at the bedding and the pillows, and it all sort of started that process. And I think it, it was really one of the, the early stages of you know, where I am today, as did it make a difference? I think everybody within the organization realized that there was an area that was being forgotten about. And it's not only about creating the right environment, uh, maybe there's subtle things about recovery time through little knocks and things in training that, that might speed up a little bit or recover better. And um, right down to you know choosing a particular room, very much about whether it was you know, facing sunrise or facing sunset, but just picking rooms, not randomly, but actually more specifically to individuals who might react to those things a little bit more. And next to, so the hotel at the time thought it was absolutely crazy. Um, the hotel manager thought we'd all gone nuts, um, but it sort of stimulated that little process. So it was a, it created a lot of media attention I have to say, it wasn't all positive. It wasn't necessarily negative, but, you know, these pampered football players have got a sleep coach and sending their own mattresses out to Lisbon and what's all that about, you know? But I was actually, I managed to get uh, plenty of free tickets as part <laughs> of my contract. And I was in the, in the stadium with my family when they played France, if anybody remembers it. And there was a certain moment in time when England were about to sort of beat France. And then I think if my memory uh, doesn't escape me, I think some gentleman called Zinazine Zidane went and stuck in a winner right at the last minute and, and ruined my sort of wonderful start to a tournament where England beat France, you know. And uh, But no, it was just a fascinating time. And, uh, you know, when I do look back at it, it's... It's sort of it's one of those little moments that at the time it didn't feel that significant, but I think when you move on into where we are today and producing sleep kits and travel kits and the technique and everything else and the way the world is about sleep today, it was one of those little significant moments. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that was two thousand four. Yeah, and it was considered crazy your suggestions or your your tactics, I guess, to optimize people's sleep. But fast forward to 2020, 2021, everything we 
now know about sleep, but which you knew in 2004, but everything that I would suggest that a lot more, a lot more people in the general public now know, um, it's not crazy at all, is it? Because we're talking about blocking lighting at night. Uh, are people um, uh, early risers or, or do they stay up late at night? And that affects, you know, you know, sunlight in the morning, blacking out rooms, temperature, core body temperature, making sure we're in a cool environment. Uh, and of course, you know, today we're all addicted to our phones, aren't we? So with it, and there's so much artificial light in our environments now at nighttime that blocking that light is of vital importance. So, I mean, my view is that you were a pioneer and you would have been considered a pioneer back in 2004. And today it's just, to me at least, it seems like just solid advice and solid solid knowledge yeah i think that's um that's why i think it's probably you know survived the course because when you mention a word sort of like crazy that means possibly you're coming up with things that just don't make sense um so but actually it was simply just lack of education and, and mis misunderstanding that's all it was so it appeared to be crazy but there was always somebody whether it was the physio or the coach or the doctor. Um, when I went into Arsenal Football Club was because Arsene Wenger had just arrived at the club, who, who was also considered crazy, you know, because he had a completely different approach to, to football players and how they managed their time. So it's kind of like, well, he's a bit crazy. You know, I might be a bit crazy, but the, the world is changing. So I think it was always about when I was mentioning these things, I think it was sort of in the back of their minds, they sort of go, well, that kind of makes sense. But we've never talked about it before. So it was only the more pioneering coaches and individuals in my particular journey that kept this going. You know, if, if they weren't around, because um, we were in pretty much isolation, I think every every other football team in and around 2004 were, were almost, did think we'd all gone crazy. But there was also a group of people. You know, there was, there was Gary Lewin, who was a very foresighted physio working for Arsenal and the England squad. He was also talking to people because a lot of the Manchester United players played for the England squad. And they were, a, you know... <laughs> You're a Tottenham fan. I'm a Villa fan. It's got nothing. To, it's all about humans and what they do, rather than the sport or the club. And there was a there was a there was a different collection of players then. You know, they weren't being dominated by social media and technology and everything else. They they were very much a sort of unique breed. The class of '92 and David Beckham and Ryan Giggs and Paul Scholes and all those sort of kind of guys in there. So they were kind of a they were a group of individuals who were very much more open to these types of things, right? And so I think it's all about timing, you know? I mean, if you try to apply that maybe to another national team or another set of players, they probably would have thrown it out and gone, I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that. Um, but it was all that sort of uniqueness about that time. Hi there, this is James Swanick and you're listening to The Swanick Podcast. 
think of Phil Jackson, the Chicago Bulls coach who uh, won uh, three titles in a row with with the Chicago Bulls with when Michael Jordan was a was a player yeah. there and. Phil Jackson brought in things like meditation and yoga, which was revolutionary for the time. And, uh, you know, Michael Jordan and all, all those title winning players all credit, you know, that kind of meditation and, and, and yoga to helping them win those titles. So what's initially considered crazy and revolutionary ends up being, you know. It's just things, I think when I first sort of, you know, fell into elite sport without any sort of particular plan. Um, there was all these little things going on. And whilst I was working my own little journey and thinking, oh, I'll go and do something else next week or next month because, you know, nobody's interested, something would happen. And I think one of the um, interesting things about writing a book is when somebody asks you to sort of wander back two decades uh, and start remembering everything you did, when I didn't have a, a phone with me to take pictures or make recordings or anything else, none of us were doing those sort of things and posting things anywhere. So you kind of, a lot of things happened, which were you sort of like, you have to really dig deep into your memory bank to go, there's a little moment. And I'll tell you what, there was one, um, Manchester United changed their away kits to what was a very sort of gray overall kit. And when they were playing a game, um, the players were sort of, they were looking at the stats and it was like a lot of missed passes and things and all sorts of stuff. And, and then somebody who they brought in who was doing something else said, what's happening is the colours of the kit is mixing in with everything else. And so the players can't identify who's who. And that's what the, and they went, you what? But they then looked at it. So then suddenly they realized that a number of players were a little colorblind. They also then started to see that some of the players had more peripheral vision than others, you know, and, and could, so you sort of go, oh, that's why Paul Scholes can do what he does because he can actually see behind himself. I exaggerate, do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's sort of like from one little moment where it was about the color of a kit blending in, that then started looking at vision, then started looking at that, and then suddenly these little tiny gains started to appear. So I think it kind of, like you said, you know, there was yoga around, but putting yoga into a football team, come on, you know, asking them to do Pilates and all that sort of stuff. Now it was, uh, you know, you're still, I mean, it still is quite apparent today, um, but you were still coming out of that era of, you know, drinking, smoking, just come train, play, you know, all that get on with it type of managerial approach in football. So some of these things were just absolutely crazy. But it was, it was certain people within that organisation and, and other managers who were starting to think that maybe longer term, uh, these things are going to make a big difference. I'm just writing my first book at the moment about alcohol. I, uh, I coach uh, people on how to change their relationship to alcohol, and that yeah. can mean reducing or it can mean quitting entirely. And uh, I have noticed a worldwide shift in consciousness about alcohol, further education. Um, 
you know, COVID permitting, obviously alcohol consumption has has gone up during COVID, uh, all the studies show. But before then, and generally speaking, more and more people are becoming, I guess the in phrase is sober curious, uh, where people are now starting to realize that you don't need alcohol in certain situations and that just one glass of alcohol is enough to compromise your sleep quality. I'm sure you could speak to that. Uh, and, you know, all these detrimental effects. And so people are starting to really question the role of alcohol uh, in their life. Um, just the way, I guess, you know, 20 years ago, no one, hardly anyone really was questioning the role of alcohol in their life, and not, not in the numbers that we are seeing now. Um, yeah, have you got any views on 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 that and maybe how it relates to sleep as well. I think the um, you could probably I think every, everybody would be aware that um, you know a a social cold beer glass of wine if that's part of your social experience is is part of a sort of balanced approach. Um, when you start moving it into three or four or five, then it's a different matter. It's also, you know, if it's if it's doing it in a very sociable human, you know, experience that we know a lot of countries adopt these things as part of their overall family and social experience. But I think in general terms, I think what I've seen is you had certainly within football, other types of sports linked into that, like rugby, rugby union, rugby league, things like that, and maybe other international NFL, maybe in other areas, um, is that it's so easy to bring in interventions that seem so natural. They don't seem to be, you know, seen as a bad thing. It's part of some, but they easily become very addictive. And I think that's been the problem over the last couple of decades, and particularly the last decade, is that because we've got uh, such a lot of access, easy access to so many things, uh, is that quietly in the background, an individual can, can start to use things to overcome fatigue or to push them through boundaries, particularly the development of caffeine, you know, in that particular area, you know, has been very dramatic. Um, and I think the alcohol bit is just part of that little process. And I think um, you certainly see a lot more people using it to try and control anxieties or depression or trying to use it as a pick-me-up or something like that. And they don't really have the the knowledge or they don't have the medical supervision that suddenly it can so easily become dependent. It has an enormous impact on your ability to recover. Um, and so eventually you find somebody, but in a lot of cases, I don't think there's, there's a lot of testing that goes on these days, but sometimes it's not that easy to spot. Um, it, it almost has to get to quite a, a critical level before it gets spotted, mm. either in personal performance or attitude, or it starts showing up in all the tests that they do with everybody. But it's much better than it was before. 
But I think, I think you know that 2020 has certainly exaggerated it. I think um, maybe there was a certain point in time for a, a percentage of the population that was sort of enjoying. You know, it's difficult because there's so much sadness and there's so much you know, that's gone on over this last week. But I certainly remember back to the first sort of lockdown period from March, April time. It was very much about, I can't even see this virus. I don't know where it is. It's happening everywhere. And, um, you know, I'm now working from home and it was like being with the family and all sorts of stuff and you're getting paid and you're not working. And it was sort of like, you could see so many people on Zoom chats and they were all just trying to make it fun because... It was a horrible period, but that suddenly shifted. And you could certainly see the evidence that um, we certainly became far more addicted to that process as we went through that first lockdown period. And I think that's why, I love the way you describe it, is um, I think we're all now realizing that um, when you go through challenges and you're faced with challenges, if you jump into these particular areas, they become very, very negative. And I think that's why we're all trying to be very conscious of moving forward, is that um, alcohol certainly needs to be either in your approach, but very well managed, why you're doing it, when you're doing it, how you're applying it, or not at all. And there's, there's a lot more people you know, long answer your question, but I think the whole other side of of our diets and our approach to foods and plant-based and all that sort of thing and trying to look after our planet and everything else, I think the sort of mindset is to be a bit more conscious and caring. Hi there, this is James Swanick, and you're listening to The Swanick Podcast. I'd like to move the conversation into some sleep-related questions, if I may. Um, And I'd like us to, I guess, finish after I ask you some questions with what is the gold standard of sleep in terms of when someone wakes in the morning, what should they do? What should they do late morning? What should they do at lunch? What should they do afternoon? What should they be doing uh, early evening, late evening in order to have the best night's sleep? But first, I just want to do a quick fire, three quick questions, and you can just give very short, brief answers. Uh, the first one is, uh, how many hours sleep should human beings get per evening? I think that that question is always fascinating, but this, this simple, quick answer to it is, I don't think there's any arguments from everything that we know that we put a 24-hour, well, it's a 24-hour-and-a-bit clock on the circadian rhythms, the sun going around our planet, uh, which creates the sort of biological timings, these circadian rhythms. Within that 24-hour process, when you look back at it, it's it's around 30-odd percent of that 24 hours that we need to be in some sort of recovery, rejuvenating state called sleep. So there's recovery, where which is sort of active recovery, but then there's this 
this process of the brain taking us into a place where it principally shuts you right down and starts to be able to uh, rejuvenate, repair, replenish all the organs and everything while you do it. And that's called sleep. So we always think around 30% of that is eight hours. That's where the eight hours comes from. And I think that's the overall benchmark. And every time you see research, uh, when they specifically focus on that, and you, you get less than eight hours, you can see consequences of it. But I would put the caveat on it. I've never met anybody who gets a solid eight hours, seven days a week, three, six, five. When you look at all the different occupations and everything else where we have to you know, work night shifts, work multi-shifts, be athletes, travel around a lot, get home at 3 a.m. in the morning or have to start early and all this sort of stuff, is that it's sort of what we try to do is, is look at within any 24-hour rolling process, are we creating enough, enough recovery moments and are we trying to help the brain as much as we possibly can while we're in a wake state that when we do present ourselves, the brain can take us into that sleep state and provide what we want. And I think that's just the challenge. So my answer is eight hours, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an all one block. And there are little differences between us all. So you have to put little things like occupation, your own personal drive and social behavior. You have to put those things in and around that um, because worrying about not getting your eight hours overnight is its biggest disruptor. Next question. What is the biggest mistake that you see most people make with their sleep? I think there's sort of two little elements to that. One is the, if you're not talking about it in the schooling, then parents are not passing it on. The fundamental principles of this health pillar just doesn't get talked about. So there's a very random approach and everything else. So it's kind of, you can't blame people, but their biggest one is they think that when they, by just allocating the time to go to sleep, that's what sleep is. So you sort of wake up in the morning and you get round to a particular point and go, oh, I've got to wake up in the morning and do it again. As long as you're allocating the time, then surely the brain should just take over and, and you sleep. And um, that's such a misconception. So when things start to get a little bit going wrong um, or they're just not feeling great, or like you pointed out, they start waking up too early or in the middle of the night or they can't get to sleep or they struggle to sleep and they don't feel energized. What they tend to do is grab isolated interventions. You know, oh, I'm not sleeping well, so I'll buy a new pillow. Oh, I'll get a new mattress or I'll get this supplement or I'll try that. And in isolation, it's just wrong. So um, I think that's their biggest mistake is... A, they don't know any different, and they try to resolve a fundamental natural recovery process by just trying to make isolated interventions. I'm going to ask you for an anecdote, if I may, for the next question, and then we'll get into the gold standard. The, the, um, what's the worst example of a professional athlete's bedroom that you have seen where the athlete probably thought that they were sleeping okay and you went in, 
had a look and and saw evidence to suggest otherwise, and maybe he or she shared with you what their pre-sleep habits were and you were just mortified and just go, oh, this is a disaster zone. <laughs> Spill the beans. I think um, there, was, there was a point in time when I was doing a lot of work with a very high-profile Premier League club and coaches were always striving to get more and more time with the athletes, you know, to have more of an impact on them. But the one area is when they leave the training ground and go home, then pretty much they've gone. So by my involvement, um, they would sort of like go and see that player in their home. So I was sort of like almost like the, the sleep detective or the home detective <laughs> where I could go and spot things, you know, that normally they wouldn't see or anything else. And sometimes, sometimes the lead the head of performance would come with me just to, because it's a top player, you know, don't just let anybody in their home. And we were sort of chatting away and I said, I bet you, I bet you they've got flat screen TVs almost like everywhere. I bet you it's probably 35 degrees C in their home because all the heating's on and everything else. When you go into their bedroom, there's probably no way of controlling the lights, you know, because they've got some fancy blinds where the curtains don't properly fit, whatever it is, unbelievable. When you when we look at the product, um, it just will not be suited to that individual. You know, it'd be too hard, bought it from some fancy shop and everything else. Then you sort of, so you wonder in and sort of, oh, this is what's happening. And you go, oh my God, you know, it's so hot, it's so this, that's wrong, that's wrong. And then you start to spot, as you're wandering around, there's three new coffee machines arrive because he started to make his own coffee with his own barista stuff and somebody got him into that, and, you know, particularly with cyclists who love all that, you know, type of stuff. And, you say, oh, hang on a minute, how does he start his day? Well, probably four espressos, you know? And then you sort of see around the bedroom and under the bed and you start seeing little things and you just go, oh, what's that under the bed, you know? And you say, well, well, I take two of those before I go to sleep. What? Yeah, well, those sleeping tablets, you know? And you're sort of like, what do you mean you're taking sleeping tablets? Well, you know. If I want to get a good night's sleep, I'll take two sleeping tablets. They're sleeping tablets, I think. That's what it says on the box. <laughs> Where do you get those from? You know, well, I get them online because the doc prescribed them to me, but he wouldn't give me any more, so I just get them online. Okay. <laughs> and um, and then you just sort of, you know, you see lots of other little personal things sometimes that uh, you shouldn't necessarily see. But I think the principles that even... Um, it was almost like there was nothing in their environment that you could say that equals recovery. It, it's all sorts of things. How many pillows has he got on his bed? 15 of them, all different shapes and sizes. You know, all this sort of stuff. And you've got this little sort of, you know, 70 kilogram ectomorph striker who's basically lying on a product it's so hard, you know, he spends most of his time. And then he's got this fantastic duvet that his partner bought from some expensive shop that was whatever it was, that's absolutely cooking it, you know? And it's sort of, and then you just, you just see other little areas like, uh, 
he's got maybe a little room off the bedroom and stuff, and you spot in there, it's all set up with a gaming machine, and he's got, you know, this and that and everything else. So when do you go in there? And he said, well, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I just go on the gaming machine and play out. You know what I mean? So you've actually set a room up for waking up. And then it sounds really negative, and it doesn't sound that sort of... But under the bed, there were 25... I exaggerate. But 25 empty water bottles. I'm going, you go to sleep and you're waking up. They say, oh, God, I've got to take water bottles to bed because I wake up all the time because I've got to rehydrate and everything else. It's all about hydration and stuff like that. So I said, how many did you get through a night? Said, oh, probably three or four of those bottles. So you're waking up to drink them. And it's kind of like, so it's all sort of fascinating little things. There are... I think the one that I think there was the most, it was nice actually, to be honest. It was, but this, uh, it was actually, it wasn't necessarily an elite athlete, but it was certainly an elite performer because they were a surgeon and they have this enormous dog and has some mountain, some Bernard thing that's like the size of a small pony. And uh, that dog would be on the bed you know, sleeping at sort of diagonally across the mattress. And the, the surgeon would be curled up in the corner on sort of less than about 1% of it, um, just hanging, hanging onto the bed in the top corner. And this dirty great dog was dominating the whole bed. And he said, do you think that's okay? He said, I love my dog and that's where he sleeps, you know. And it, <laughs> I sort of like, like I say, it's kind of nice, isn't it? But it was kind of like, are you not more important than your dog? Why don't you just get your dog a bed and put it in another room? He said, I tried that. <laughs> but just wants to come back in my bed. But the thing is, is they don't, even at that level, they didn't see that as a problem, right? What they would see, I don't sleep that well, Nick. You know, long hours as a surgeon or a football, I don't sleep, I don't all these wake up a lot at night and everything else. And I think it's also the answer to the other question. Because of a lack of education understanding, they don't take it back to something like that could actually be wrong. So you can't blame them, but you sort of go, you need to get that out. You also need to stop taking hundreds of water bottles with you, to, and, you know, turn the heating down, mate, you know? And all this sort of stuff. So eventually you can you can change everything. But it's only because they don't know. Hi there, this is James Swanick and you're listening to the Swanick Podcast. I'm sure many of our listeners or viewers are probably sheepishly thinking, oh, yeah, I take my dog to bed and, oh, yep, I've got a video game room and, oh, yeah, I've got a big screen that I'm watching from bed staring into the blue light without protecting my eyes. Hey, I mean, you guys, you guys and light and everything else and loads of the products that you do, it's all amazing, but you suddenly sort of go, oh, God, here we go, flat screens that we don't even have to get up to switch off. Well, so we just we just hit the button on the remote. So we aren't even getting out of bed now. We've got that standby right there. Oh, look where they're putting them now, right on the wall. Now they're 50-inch, now they're 60-inch. 
And here it is, just right there. Oh, no, it's coming up from the bottom of the bed now. It's even in the foot end of the bed. And it just comes up in front of you while you're there in bed. It goes down again, comes up again. It just goes, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> just absolutely fascinating. But it's all like, yeah, what's wrong with that? And I said, well, it's like a laser beam going straight into your brain, going, wake up, wake up, wake up. You know what I mean? Is it? Well, yeah, it is. Oh, what should I do then? I don't well, you know. For the for the uninitiated, maybe who I'm sure most of our listeners and viewers understand what we're referring to with the danger of blue light. But may I ask you to maybe just explain and as a crash course about why staring into blue light from a screen uh, or a phone or for, or whatever at night without blocking blue light is so bad for you, and maybe explain why you feel I'm wearing a pair of orange lensed blue light blocking glasses and maybe just give a little bit of context on that. Makes you look like a rock star. The, <laughs> yeah, I um, think so, Nick. <laughs> yeah, my, my particular knowledge of it is, is, is fairly limited within certain parameters. I think what we certainly look at is there's a blue energy wave in daylight um, it's all about that circadian process that principally triggers through light receptors behind the eyes into a little gland called the pineal gland, a hormone called serotonin. And that serotonin triggers, tells the brain, it doesn't make the brain do it, but it informs the brain uh, to unsuppress everything. And it's all about bodily functions, but it's also about mood, motivation, energy, happiness, all that sort of stuff comes from serotonin. So when you look at the first two phases um, of the day from sunrise into midday, midday into sunset. That is when we're pretty much dominated by this, as you know, anybody else, you know, 80 to 100,000 lux, which is the way you measure light with daylight that's outside. And within that, there's the energy waves. So those first two phases, all about serotonin. To make you active, take advantage of the daylight. When the sun disappears, you're basically moving into, when you look back at our history on this planet, you're moving into what's called melatonin land. And that's because it's amber light, red light, yellow light, gas light, fire light. All of those things haven't got the energy light in. So you move into melatonin land. So you can still be active. You can still do stuff, you know, sing around the fire, cookie dinner, whatever. Um, but you're moving towards phase four, which is midnight into sunrise again. And that is about the dark period. And that is about you're just moving. And the melatonin is just switched from the serotonin, which is telling the brain to now suppress things and move you towards shutdown. So if you invent electric light, as we did, um, and that started hitting phase three, as well as during our day, when we shift through the seasons, then you start bringing in technology, um, and there's ways to control the light. So this thing is a combination of two things. One is excessive information overload, excessive technology exposure. And within that, that while you're still interacting with anything that's uh, got blue light in it from devices, whatever, all you're doing is continuing to keep your serotonin levels higher than they want to, yeah, they should be diminishing, instead they're increasing. 
And when you then suddenly try to present yourself to sleep, because there's only so many hours to do it, you may well, you know, crash into a sleep state. If you're very tired, push the boundaries, whatever, the brain might just take over. But in many respects, um, you'll have a disturbed sleep because the brain is being told to unsuppress everything when you're actually trying to suppress everything. So I think that's the only way, and we certainly get it predominantly uh, in the countries where we have daylight saving time and we shift the clocks um, in winter and spring. And so I think we've always tried to ensure that we understand the level of light that's around any individual, whether it's training grounds, stadiums, in their homes, try to get a much better understanding of the level of light that we're being exposed to through the four phases of the day to manage that process much better. And so you would use things like lamps and blue blockers and glasses and this and everything you possibly could so you don't overexpose or underexpose. Yeah. As I'm recording this with you now, it's seven... Get away with that one, talking to an expert in light. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Nick. Yeah, uh, as we're recording this, it's 7.42 at night in Brisbane, Australia. It's the morning where you are in the UK. So for those who are listening but not seeing this particular interview, I am wearing a pair of orange-lensed blue light blocking glasses from my company, Swanick. These uh, blue light blocking glasses are referred to as Swannies. Uh, I put these on around about 7 o'clock each night, and I don't remove them until... I've switched off the final light on my bedside table. Um, I don't remove them and then go and brush my teeth in the bathroom light because then, of course, I'm exposing my eyes to the bathroom light. Uh, I wear them uh, and then I get into bed and only once I've switched off the light do I then remove the glasses in the dark and put them on my bedside table. And Since I've been doing this since 2015, my sleep quality, not just sleep quantity, but my sleep quality has improved um, noticeably, both anecdotally, just as I'm feeling it, and also I've, I've tracked it through the use of an aura ring and a couple of other devices as well. There have been nights where I haven't worn my glasses and nights that I have, and I've been able to see a very clear differential there. Yeah. Um, are there any other anecdotal examples you have of of folks wearing blue light blocking glasses uh, in general, and and that being an improvement in their sleep quality, Nick? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's always a, you know, I I wear glasses, um, and have done for the majority of my you know adult life. So wearing glasses for me is not unusual, you know. I think if you don't wear glasses, then you haven't got any prescription, then you can actually use them as a bit of a, you know, I don't want to undermine the power of it, but you you know, you look like a rock star, so it's not bad, right? But it's sort of, it's like if you're going to suddenly then wear glasses in the evening like you are, because you're doing it for a very specific time, um, so if you're going to actually adopt what you do and actually put them on and keep them on right up until the point, trying to protect yourself so you get into melatonin land, that's okay. But for some people, if they don't wear glasses, then wearing glasses at that point in the day rather than sunglasses when it's sunny outside, 
sort of is a little bit of a complex cell. You know, put the glasses on when you're inside your home and wear them from sort of seven o'clock onwards until you switch the lights off that you describe. But once they sort of go, why am I doing that? Well, you've either got to use some other technique or you can actually live a normal evening and do exactly what you normally do, but you just wear those glasses. And, you know, you can get them in prescription and everything else. So I think it's just, it's just putting it in context that you've either got to get rid of all the light in your home and wander around in the dark, you've got to get rid of your technology, you've got to stop doing everything you want to do in your third phase of the day, you've got to not be able to sort of, you know, maybe you should write me a letter if we're going to do a podcast rather than being on this technology and stuff. I think it's just one of these things, like everything that humans create, is if you're going to, if this is what you're doing, you've got to be able to protect yourself as a human being. Right? You can't forget that. You're just a brain and bodily functions. The sun's going around the planet. It's all about light, dark, and this. It's all about those two hormones. It's all about this. So if you're going to invent things that takes you further away from this lovely synchronized process because we don't live outside anymore, then if you want to do that, you need to do this. And that's as simple as that. You can't do that if you don't do this. So I think, you know, your success is you find a, at least some product that's very versatile, as non-intrusive as it possibly can. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you'll develop other ways to... Um, as as every year progresses, ways that we can manage that whole... I think the bit, that what I like about your approach is when you're sort of like, yes, it's the blue light. Yes, you're man. I think the other factor is that you are generating a much more... A higher balance of that melatonin. Melatonin is all about chilling out. It makes you feel calm. It makes you feel comfortable. Maybe the whole way that you interact with your information on it, so you don't overreact to things. They don't have as much impact on you. So, I think the one bit about melatonin and serotonin. Serotonin will stop you sleeping. Melatonin will sort of help you sleep. It also is a hormone that creates calm. So, I think what your what your experience is two things is by controlling that light exposure over a, a good period of time, you're creating a completely different phase. And I think, from my own experience, sleep is such a natural recovery process. You don't have to force it. You don't have to try and do it. It will always reveal itself if you've got a nice approach. And I think that's the fundamental thing about what you're doing, is you're creating an approach that your brain loves. And it just happens to be because you wear some glasses that does that. Hi there, this is James Swanick, and you're listening to The Swanick Podcast. Yeah, thank you. We're, um, not to make this an advertorial, but we're also coming out with a, um, a light oh, bulb. I don't know what was coming up then. <laughs> <laughs> I love these Zoom meetings. Something just appears like this orange thing starts coming up, and then I see it's a bulb. Well done. Yeah, so this is our Better Nights anti-blue light bulb, which has removed uh, 99% of 
the artificial blue light. So when you plug this in, it creates a very calming effect. Yeah. There's no blue light in it um, that disrupts your melatonin production by stimulating your pituitary gland, uh, gland, for example. So I have these on my bedside uh, table, on both sides of my bedside table in, in lamps. And uh, it's a very, very soothing light. Um, we switch off the overhead lights. We have these anti-blue light bulbs. And even despite using these in my home after seven o'clock at night when the, when the sun is down, I'm still wearing my blue light blocking glasses yeah. uh, because I am as guilty as the next person. And I do glance at my phone on occasion uh, when the, the sun has gone down and uh, check things like English Premier League scores uh, and uh, various other other things on my phone. Uh, that's that's I think the point um, my dad have emphasised before is it, it's you can get screen protected. You can get other things. You can when it's all about technology. If you're on your technology, you've got this. So it, you know it's going to keep you away. Yes, that's fine. But the difference is, is that just if you're protecting the blue light from your tech, maybe in another way, there's still all the other factors. What you're doing with the glasses is whether you're using protectors or you're using even specialist light bulbs like you've got there, you're still wearing the glasses because you're still moving around and you're doing stuff and everything else. and So it's that whole period of being with the glasses that creates the result. It's not about just putting them on just because you're looking at tech and then you take them off again and go into the kitchen or the bathroom, like you said. And, I'm fascinated by that little thing you mentioned because I don't know how long ago it was, but it was just like, yeah, well, you know, we have a calming pre-sleep routine. We put the candles on and we have aromatherapy and we do a little bit of meditation and we do a little bit of this. And then we go along there and then I, you know, I put my shorts on and my T-shirts and get ready and I go into the bathroom, switch the lights on and brush my teeth. <laughs> and I went, amazing. So I think I just wanted to make that point is that we have got lots of ways we can, you know, control these. I mean, be even more, won't we? But I think the key factor for anybody listening to this is the reason why you see those positive results is because you've got them on all the time in a particular phase of the day. Yeah, thank you. So let's uh, just start to wrap this up now. And and what I want to do, I, I did say earlier I was going to ask you for the gold standard of sleep, but I, I want to flip it on its head. I'm going to um, share with you what I consider to be the gold standard of sleep, and I'm going to get you to critique it or give it a score out of 10 and maybe either okay. add something or delete or amend or polish. Okay. So here we go. When people wake up first thing in the morning, they should expose themselves to natural sunlight as soon as possible. Our skin has receptors on it. And when the sunlight hits our skin, it triggers our circadian rhythm to say, oh, this is daytime. And so all of a sudden our body floods with daytime hormones and the body therefore about 14 hours later is going to want to start to naturally turn on the melatonin faucet. Uh, Studies have shown that people who exercise in the morning tend to sleep a little better. They think it's because of two reasons. One, people who exercise in the morning tend to do it more regularly, and so therefore they're healthier in general, which lends itself to good quality sleep. And two, they have found that sleeping, uh, sorry, exercising close to bedtime raises our core body temperature, which compromises our sleep. 
Uh, no caffeine after 2 p.m. or within eight hours of wanting to sleep. Caffeine is a stimulant. And despite people saying that they can fall asleep just fine by having a late night cappuccino, the quality of their sleep will nevertheless be compromised. Uh, studies have shown uh, avoiding eating food or drinking alcohol in the last three hours before going to sleep uh, can improve sleep quality because alcohol and food, um, your, your liver is now working. It's not in a rejuvenating restorative state because your liver is now trying to break down the toxins and alcohol. And then the digestive system is also working because it's trying to break down the food that you've eaten. And both of those two activities is not putting your body in a uh, restorative state. Um, we touched on this before, obviously, which is um, block as much artificial blue light at night. Of course, I'm wearing my own product here, Swanee's Blue Light Blocking Glasses. The orange lens blocks the blue light that can trigger our pituitary and pineal gland and suppress our melatonin production. So wear a pair of blue light blocking glasses at nighttime. Uh, sleep in a cool temperature. Studies show 18 degrees Celsius or 65 to 69 degrees Fahrenheit is the optimal uh, sleeping environment. Very dark black curtains so you can block out artificial or sorry, block out natural sunlight that may uh, wake you up uh, earlier than needs be in the morning and, and also blocks out you know, uh, street lights and traffic lights and things that might find its way into your, uh, into your room. Um, and then uh, trying to make, ensure that you, you wake up at the same time each day. So even if you're going to sleep time changes, trying to get into a, a very consistent wake up time has been shown to improve sleep quality. Uh, and then I would say rinse and repeat which is wake up in the morning, expose yourself to natural sunlight as soon as possible, and then carry on with, with what I perceive to be uh, our standard of sleep. But I'll let you, the expert, Nick Littlehouse, now critique that for me. I think I've just lost my job. <laughs> I think, as you were pointing out before, I think to, to even listen to somebody else rolling through those things uh, in my journey in here would just be, you know, it's just amazing. You know, I, I feel very connected to that whole process because all of the things you've just mentioned, we're just never even talked about. We're not even joined up like that. So it's amazing. I think the, the bit that I would add to is that uh, if, if I missed it, you can correct me. Um, but if you are having to use blackout, um, to protect yourself from the changes in sunrise. If you go through those seasons and daylight saving time, sometimes that you can't use the natural sunlight or your bedroom doesn't point in the right direction to do it. Um, so I would think about the, the lightweight tool. Uh, so rather than thinking that it can be wake up, alarm goes off, you're in blackout, get outside, do your exercise as quick as you can to get exposed to daylight. I think some sort of light, light storm wake simulator or something like that can help with that process because it's, it's not natural to wake in the dark. We need that light stimulus. So if you can't get it from outside, you've got to kind of recreate it a little bit. And you do have those AMers and PMers, don't we? Those chronotypes, those owls and larks who, who really, you know, us AMers, we can be off jogging at five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock on our bikes. And, 
taking the dog for a walk and all that stuff. All of those nice things that we hear about, uh, that it's really important and it might even help you sleep, but I'm a PMer who can't get out of bed. So the little lamp might help get the PMer outside quicker, but the AMer doesn't necessarily know it. The consistent wait time, fundamental, you know, it's, I know you focused, we focused on a bit of pre-sleep, but the, the whole thing about that little journey with the, with the brain, and it may sound a little bit simplistic, but I coach all sorts of different types of people um, in different spaces, whether it's clinical sports or whether it's sports science or whether it's just, you know, some young people on their journey. And you just sort of look, if you have a good start to your day, which is a consistent wait time, doesn't mean you have to wake exactly at that time every day. It's just that's where your phase is. So if I pick 6.30, then I'm going to wake some point 5.30, 5.45, 6 o'clock, 5 past 6. But it's always going to be before 6.30. But that's the start of my day. And if I just forget the fact that I wasn't in control of my sleep, my brain was. So whatever I got, however it feels, just crack on from that consistent wait time. Loads of light, exercise, hydrate, bowel and bladder, mental challenges. Think about that light exposure in the first two phases of the day. Understand that there is a, you need to point the brain in different directions every couple of minutes, just to give it a little visualization recovery break. You might even think that um, you could do a little 30 minute uh, cycle late afternoon or just a little vacant mind space a little thing you might actually micro sleep sometimes you, might, you can actually add that in and, and maybe think about your nocturnal sleep and you can think about cycles you can think about that so i very quickly always go uh would you like a consistent wait time i'm talking to my brain and my brain says yes please would you like all these things to happen at that first point? Light, this, bowel, bladder, hydration, exercise. Yeah, 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 because I'm pretty useless until you've got me out of that sleep phase and into an active phase. Do you want little breaks every 90 minutes or something? Just point you in a different direction? Yeah, because I just process stuff and it helps. Would you like a little late afternoon? Little, yeah, well, if you're going to push me into phase three of the evening and you've got lots to do and you want to do this and want to do that, just give me a nice little break, you know, late afternoon. And we, sometimes I might put you to sleep, sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll do something else. That's absolutely fine. Would you like to, yeah, just keep focused on this melatonin phase. Be active, let's go and do stuff, but just keep that blue light out of the way. Because I love it here, but not there. And then, fine, I'll then take over, give you the best recovery you can. Can't guarantee it all the time, but I'll give you the best recovery you can, as long as you start your day every day. So it's only then, do you actually think Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? No, I don't, says your brain. I just think it's a rolling process, starts with sunrise, starts with, ends with sunset, it's going through the phases, it just rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls, it's got nothing to do with a 24 hour clock or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it just happens. And I think when you get to the point which you made here, which was amazing, all of those little things. The bit about worrying about sleep is if you get to that point where you can stop worrying about it, a lot of people ask me the question that, you know, you're an elite sports sleep coach and you know lots of people and you must sleep brilliantly, get your eight hours every night and all that sort of stuff. So I gave up thinking like that a long, long time ago. 
I've just got a little technique in my back pocket. The things that you've just mentioned, yeah? Things that you've just mentioned are in my back pocket. They're very subconscious. I'm not going overwhelmed, but they're just there. And as long as I let that roll, and sometimes I interact with it and adapt it because things change and things happen. As long as that roll, I get my five cycles a day, four cycles at night, one late afternoon, bang, 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 lots of little breaks. But I don't care. I'm not even bothered how I'm going to sleep on Saturday night. It'll be what it'll be. And I think as soon as you take that thing away, strange enough, like wearing your glasses into that particular period, like I said, the other little bit that comes in, as soon as you start worrying about it and you feel like you've got some way of managing it, strangely enough, your brain and your overall recovery starts to improve. <laughs> Can sort of happen more naturally. So you've smashed it. Well done. Nick Little Hales. Thank you so much. I so appreciate uh, you spending time with us here with your guidance and your expertise. Uh, my father is just trying to call me. This is a very uh, inopportune time as we're uh, settling, finishing up here. He just was phoning me on my FaceTime. Lucky I'm wearing my blue light blocking glasses <laughs> before I answer the call. There we go. He's trying to call me again. Uh, Nick Littlehales, author of uh, the book Sleep. Uh, which has now been translated into 15 different languages uh, and uh, an international elite sport sleep coach and founder of the R90T Human Recovery Performance Technique. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, so appreciate you, sir. Thank you very much. Good chat. Thanks for joining us this week on the Swanick Podcast. If you liked what you heard, give us a subscribe and while you're at it, forward it to a friend you think would benefit from hearing it too. You can find us on social media or at shopswanick.com.